Thanks, Dan. How about we pray before we have our last Bible talk of the semester? <clears throat> Father in heaven, thank you for getting us this far in. I pray now that you will still our questing thoughts, those things that unsettle our hearts, whether they be exams or other wider life problems, and that you'll help us to focus now on what your word has to say to us. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. Every now and then, something happens in our lives which completely changes the way that we look at the world. Now, sometimes that's an experience, sometimes it's a person, but more often than not, it's a piece of information, and it causes you to revise how you make sense of the world. Now, the movie The Sixth Sense is a classic example of this, and warning, there will be spoilers, so if it's on your movie watch list, now is the time to put your finger in the ears, I will not judge you if you do. Let me tell you about The Sixth Sense. Uh, it's a movie about a psychologist who is helping a young boy who says he can see dead people. Now, the whole tension of this movie is the psychologist going back and going forth, trying to work out whether this kid is actually crazy or not. And the movie goes on, the tension builds until a certain point in the movie where it's revealed to us who are watching on that the psychologist is dead. He's a ghost. He's been a ghost the whole time. He actually thinks that he's alive. And, and, and it's just that mind psych where all of a sudden we're just like, hang on a minute. And you just lunge for the remote control because you want to hit rewind. Because you'll never watch the movie in the same way again. You see, once you see it, you can't unsee it. You know those memes, right? You know, they show you the picture and, and there's like... There's like a gorilla or some sort of creepy man in the back window, in the background of the, the, the picture. Once you see it, it, it forever changes how you view the picture. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Now, I had this experience when I first came to university. I don't know what it was like for you, but up until that point, I had grown up in a local church, a very small local church, in a, in a very small Baptist youth group. I went to a local Christian school. Now, I'd been to kind of youth conferences like Revive and those sorts of things, but they'd never been big. And so it wasn't until I got to university that I realized just how big the Christian world was. Because all of a sudden there were these things called ministry trainees. And there were pastors who could actually preach. And, and there were ministries going on all over the place. They didn't have just the same five people in them. And it turned out that there was a whole history of Christian ministry, even just in Sydney, that had been going gangbusters since long before I was even born. Now, you've got to remember, this was in the time before the internet, okay? So, if you wanted to listen to a sermon, you can just hop on your podcast app on your phone or even go onto your computer. You had to know the church existed. You then had to write to the church. And if you were lucky and sent some money, they would send you a cassette tape upon which the sermon had been re-recorded. Uh, so, it wasn't until I came to campus that I realized how much smaller a fish I was in a much, much larger pond than I ever thought was possible. And what I want to suggest to you today is that today's passage should bring about a similar change in your own awareness. Because it gives you a piece of information that once you see it, you cannot unsee it. And it should make us lunge for that remote control, hit the rewind button. Because what it does is it completely reshapes the way that we think about our salvation and about our place in God's plan. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Because I want you to enjoy the talk, okay? I don't want to ruin it like I ruined the movie for you. You're not going to have much fun with that anymore. But the talk we can still redeem. And so the way we're going to do this, we're going to do it under the four headings. The four headings are on your outlines there. Your identity, your part, your danger, 
And then finally to remind us that this passage is not about you at all, it's about God. I've got God's purpose. So let's talk about your identity. Now, I don't know whether you think about this much, but you're a Gentile. And by, what, I, what I mean by that is that you're not Jewish. Australia is a Gentile country. It has some Jews, especially in Sydney's east, but in the main, it is filled with Gentiles. Now, the thing to understand about all of this is that if you are a Christian, therefore, in Australia, the odds are that you are a Gentile Christian and not a Jewish Christian. And I want to say that that difference matters. You see, one of Paul's main objectives in the book of Romans, and, and you, once you see this, you, you actually see it unfolding, he was trying to get the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians to see that they were both Christians. And so the issue for the Roman church back then was that they were so keenly aware of the fact that they were different that Paul's purpose was to get them to see that in Christ they were one. But today in Australia, Gentile Australia, we have the opposite problem. We don't think there's a difference at all. And I want to suggest that that's due to two things. One of them is partly due to our circumstances. And the second is actually partly due to our good theology. Let's have a look at both of them. First of all, our circumstances. Now, generally speaking, they're entirely Gentile. You see, when the gospel came to us, whether it was your little kid or whether it was you know, growing up in a, in a school ICF group or whether it was at university, you didn't hear it preached in a Jewish town by a Jewish preacher in the Jewish language. You heard it in Australia. You heard it from an Asian or an Anglo, in Mandarin or Cantonese or English. And what happened was the gospel came to you removed from its Jewish context and Jewish heritage. And so we didn't receive it with a sense of the difference. All the Jewishness, if you like, had kind of been filtered out of the gospel message. Now, this isn't entirely a bad thing because it's part and parcel of good theology, which is the second reason we have this problem. The reason that we were able to accept the gospel from a Gentile as a Gentile is because we know that, and this is, this is Romans chapter 10, verse 12, if you want to remember that from last week, we know that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. Uh, you can find it elsewhere in Romans. Remember the very first verse in the very first week, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the summary verse of Romans. The gospel is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. And so we rightly know that the gospel is not exclusive. And so we know, therefore, that the Jew-Gentile distinction, it doesn't matter. At least not when it comes to matters of salvation. But here's the thing. Do you remember what the rest of that verse in Romans 1, verse 16 says? The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then the Greek. Greek is another way of just saying Gentile. And so even after the gospel neutralizes the distinction, it doesn't erase it. In fact, it retains it. And so the thing to get in all of this is that though you may first and foremost be a Christian, the same Lord is the Lord of all. There are no more ethnic distinctions or advantages. Even though that is true, the scripture still retains the distinction. And that means that it's meaningful. You are a Gentile Christian, and that matters. So that's your identity. You're a Gentile Christian. Let's talk, secondly, about your part. I don't know whether many of you guys have been in any drama situations, but if you're an actor, 
it's really important that you know what part you're playing in the movie. Because otherwise you'll come on at the wrong time, and you'll stand in the wrong place, and you'll say the wrong thing, and you'll stuff up the entire scene. You'll look like a doofus. That's what I've got here. And so what Paul is doing in bringing our attention to our gentiliness is giving us the script of the story that we're in. And yes, we will get to the Bible. Let's have a look. Verse 25. We're not going to work through it systematically today because it's a shorter talk. This is what he says in verse 25. And he's talking to Gentile believers here. Here's the script. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now you've got to remember the the pressing question throughout chapters 9 to 11. Israel hasn't believed the gospel. And so does that mean that God has not been faithful? And up until now, all Paul has really done is show us that Israel is responsible for her unbelief. But, but that doesn't give us any resolution. Because God still made a promise to them that he would save his people. And so if we just left it at Romans 9 and 10, we still have this lingering question over God's character. Is what he said true? Is he actually being faithful? Has he broken his word? And so that's why Paul says what he says here in these verses, in verses 25 and 26. He resolves the tension. And he does that by listing the three acts in God's salvation story. What are they? We'll have you look at the verses again. First act, a partial hardening comes upon Israel. Second act, the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Third act, in this way all Israel will be saved. Now, question for you. Which act of God's salvation story do you think that we're currently up to? Skim your eyes over those three acts. Which act do you think we're currently up to in the story? It's act two, isn't it? This is the era of the salvation of the Gentiles. The gospel has gone to all the ends of the earth, Africa, Asia, Australia, and it is reaping a harvest. And what Paul says here, though, is that there is a third act in the story. Act 1, Israel rejects the gospel. We saw that in Romans 10. Act 2, Gentile salvation. We see that in Romans 9 as well as Romans 10. But he says there's a third act. Act 3, and in it we will see a reversal of Israel's rejection. And all Israel will be saved. Now he's not talking here about every single individual He's talking corporately. And there's a lot of debate about these verses. So if you want to think a bit more about what the different options are, you can come talk to me. But what he's not talking about here is an Israelite here or there. What he's talking about is a wide-scale return of Israel to their God. God has not finished with Israel. And he has not broken his promises. So we're in Act 2. Second question for you. Where do the Gentiles fit into this plan of salvation? It's Acts 2 again, isn't it? You are the means by which God will save ethnic Israel. Doesn't mean that you'll be any less of God's people. You're not a second class citizen in the kingdom of God because you have the same inheritance, you have the same blessings. But the thing that we need to understand is that we are part of a bigger story. One in which we aren't the only or or even the main character. What's our part in the story? Well, we see it there a bit earlier in verse 11. 
And to put it crudely, what we are is the new girlfriend intended to make Israel jealous. Let's have a look at verse 11. So I ask, did they, that is to say Israel, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, that's Act 1, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, that's Act 2, so as to make Israel jealous. And so there it is. That's the mechanism by which Act 3 comes about. Gentiles are saved. Israel gets jealous. And that's why he says, Paul, what he says in verses 13 and 14. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Now, you're starting to see the point in all of this, your part in all of this. The salvation story doesn't end with you. You thought the movie was all about you, but it's not. At least, it's, it's not all about you. Because just as Israel's rejection of the gospel meant salvation for you Gentiles, your acceptance of the gospel will lead to Israel's salvation. kind of has this beautiful kind of symmetry to it, doesn't it? You see, it is through the inclusion of the Gentile world in God's salvation that one day in God's mercy and in His plan, the Jews will wake up and actually go, hang on a minute, that's God's salvation. And He promised that to me. Jesus, that, that, that's, that, that's my Messiah. And I want to sign up. Where do I sign up? So that's our part. We are Gentile Christians. And we're in a much bigger story. Third, our danger. Our danger is convincing ourselves that the play ends with Act 2 instead of Act 3. And so it was that all the Gentiles were saved and they lived happily ever after. But the problem with that sort of thinking is that it elevates us Gentiles who believed over those nasty Israelites who disobeyed God. But the thing that we need to remember is that the story, is, there's more to the story than just our salvation. We are in the middle of Act 2, but we know the script. We know what's coming, and so we need to let that shape the way that we think toward the Jewish people. These verses have unfortunately been used to justify anti-Semitism, but there is no justification here. There's actually justification for the opposite. Have a look at verse 28. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Why? Well, because contextually, we're in the middle of Act 2. The majority of Israel's descendants are, even to this day, disobeying God by disobeying his gospel. So by definition, they are enemies of the gospel. But then look what he says, because he doesn't just finish there and just say, God's done with the Jews. No, he says this. As regards the gospel, they are enemies. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They can't be called back. And so what this is saying to us is that the Jewish people still have a special place in God's salvation plan because they are physically descended from the people that God originally made his promises to. And this is what I'm driving at when I told you, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Yes, the same Lord is Lord of all. But there is a distinction that still has relevance and it should shape the way that you look upon your Christian faith as a Gentile. Because you do not have that same heritage. 
By God's mercy, you've been allowed to share in that heritage, but it's not yours by birthright. And that's why Paul uses the illustration that he does in verses 17 to 24 about the olive tree and the branches. He says to the Gentile believers that they are wild branches and they have been grafted into a cultivated olive tree. Now, to get the idea of this image, the tree is Israel. The root that nourishes them is God. And he says to the Gentile believers, you are a legit part of the olive tree. Don't get me wrong, but don't think that that makes you natural. Somebody had to come and graft you in for you to enjoy the benefits of that cultivated olive tree. And so if you look at verse 19, we discover that natural branches were broken off so that we might be grafted in. And then verse 20, we see that they were broken off because of their unbelief. And in doing so, by being broken off because of their unbelief, it allowed us as Gentiles to be grafted in. The rejection of the gospel meant riches for the world, and we need to remember that. We need to remember that it is through their trespass that salvation came to the Gentiles. And the temptation, the danger for us as Gentile believers now, just as it was in Rome, is to look upon those cut-off branches, natural though they may be, and say, those stupid branches, they just didn't recognize Jesus. If only they had had faith like me. But to do that is to become proud and complacent and to forget the fact that we are actually not natural branches. Have a look at what Paul says in verse 20. It is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So pat yourself on the back. No, what does he say? So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches neither will he spare you. So don't get entitled. Don't get complacent. Instead, what are we to do? Verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And so Paul says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. You... Know your identity. Know your part. Don't fall into the danger of arrogance because you will otherwise be forgetting the fact that you will continue in the faith and because of your disobedience, you will be cut off from the tree of life. You do not want to forget that you have been grafted in. Otherwise, you will not continue in the faith. You will be cut off. So fourth and finally, God's purpose I want to shift gears here just a bit. And I want to zoom out and ask a question. Why is God doing this? We've kind of looked at Romans 9, 10, 11. We've kind of seen this really weird thing where it kind of goes back and forth between the Gentiles and the Jews. What is God doing in doing it this way? Now, I was reflecting on this passage earlier this week with somebody. And I said to him, now, if I were God, and there's a, there's a dangerous statement, right? But, but I, let's roll with it, see how it goes. I said, if I were God... And I set out to save the whole world, Jew and Gentile. I wouldn't make it this complex. What is God doing with this kind of weird, freaky three-stage process where the Gentiles get what Israel rejected, but then there's some jealousy, and so Israel wants to rejoin the party, and they all live happily ever after? It just seems a bit too much. But Paul gives us the reason why God does it this way in verse 30. 
For just as you at one time were disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. And here, this is verse 32 now. This is the summary statement of really the whole chapter uh, and, and really the thing that the, the verse that explains everything that God has been doing in chapters 9 through to 11. What does it say? For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. God's mercy. And you see this, it goes all the way back to chapter 9 and God's election. God chooses who he will make a vessel of his mercy. It goes all the way back to chapter 10, God's righteousness. We are saved not by our own works of righteousness, but by the free gift of God's righteousness as a result of his mercy. And then it finishes here with the salvation of both Jew and Gentile on God's mercy. The Jews may have been beloved for the sake of their forefathers, but by the end of Act 3, not even they will be able to say that they are saved by anything other than the mercy of God. He is consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. And this is where I want to leave us today. Uh, and it's an appropriate way, I think, to finish the semester, by finishing on the mercy of God. Brothers and sisters, everything that God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ has been to display and to bestow his mercy on sinners like you and me. And he has done it in such a way that nobody could have seen it coming. And the reason he does that ultimately is to show us that we are not like him, that we are indebted to him in every single way. Look at how Paul finishes the section in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? You see, what God is doing in salvation is creating a people who will have a holy fear and apprehension and wonder and awe of him who is above us and yet bends low to bestow upon us his favor and his mercy. That is what we are to give him. We are to praise his glory for what he has done and how he has done it. Why? Well, the answer and the end of this sermon is verse 36. It's a good motto and reminder of what all of life, especially yours, is for. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you in your work of salvation that you showed yourself to be higher than us, wiser than us, better than us. Thank you that in it we see your mercy on everyone, both Jew and Gentile. And I pray that as Gentile Christians, we will remember that we are doubly indebted to you as ones who did not have the birthright and yet still receive mercy. Will you bless us with a humility rather than a pride and a deep thankfulness to you who saved us from our sins. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen.